Hello, and welcome to Now Next, the podcast that helps you navigate your meaningful now and your meaningful next. My name is Mary Claire. I'm going to be the only host this week, but that's okay because our guest is so cool, it's going to make up for it. But this season, we're talking all about embodiment and kind of just the fact that humans have bodies that help us with our navigation of our vocation. That was way too much rhyming. I didn't love it. But again, vocation is any meaningful life-giving work for the world and figuring out your vocation, oh boy, it is not a linear process. You're just constantly kind of going through the ringer. And to help us figure all that out just a little bit more, today we have the wonderful Catherine Poe. Catherine, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi guys, uh, my name is Catherine. My pronouns are they and she, and I work for Quality Ohio. I'm a public policy organizer, and I also do a lot of work around disability rights advocacy and rare disease advocacy in Ohio. Beautiful, I love it. So right at the top, embodiment. That word can mean so many different things, and I think it brings up a lot of different images. So how would you define embodiment? Yeah, this is actually a really hard one because I was thinking about how I was going to answer this question before the interview. (laughs) And I think that obviously being something with a body, right, means that you like exist in the world. But it also, to me, is an acknowledgement that like the world can affect you. So like you're not only affecting the world, but the systems and people and places that you go in your life also like affect you because you exist in it. And so for me, I think it's a lot about like sort of a give and take sort of a deal. Cause obviously when you're walking through life and like feeling the world around you, like we, we think about existing in things, but you know, your daily life affects you too. And so it is really a give and take in that way. Do you have any embodiment practices that help you figure out how the world isn't interacting with your body and how your body is interacting with the world? So my partner and I really like to go on long walks. They kind of just zone me into my surroundings and getting the air on my face. And so I'm a really big coffee person and I believe in like doing something really nice for myself every day. And usually the way that I do that is like the first thing that I do in the morning is I like walk across the street to our coffee shop and go get coffee. Um, And I would say that that is actually a pretty good example of just like grounding yourself in the world and not necessarily being immediately connected to work or immediately connected to a screen, just sort of like looking up and walking. And that's like my best example of it every day. I will say that looking at myself in the mirror for me definitely is. I'm a really big, (laughs) this sounds, this sounds, I don't even know how this sounds, but like I really love, um, I like skincare because it's a way that I can like make myself feel nice and at the same time take care of myself because uh, skincare is basically medicine. So doing like tiny things like that are super helpful in just my daily life for existing in the universe as myself. Are you going to drop that skincare routine? Because this is audio only so no one can see your face, but your skin is beautiful <laughs> and mine is struggling right now. I can, I can totally hook you up. I love skincare and it really is medicine. It's absolutely like worth investing in. So absolutely. I could drop that skincare routine. Beautiful. Might be in the description of this podcast. So look out. <laughs> so medicine, bodies, this is my shaky segue into talking about disability 
what is your experience with disability? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with a learning disability when I was really young, when I was in second or third grade, which, well, I'm non-binary, but someone that presents as a woman um, was a really interesting experience because it was in the early 2000s and mostly boys were getting diagnosed with ADHD. I was a really early catch um, for a girl. And it was because I was really aggressive (laughs) and I couldn't sit still. And um, at the same time, I also have dyslexia and a processing disorder. So elementary school up through middle school were really challenging for me, just existing in the education system. I was basically just failing out of classes all the way through elementary school and really just having trouble being in the classroom with other people. And then when I was in high school, I started having major health difficulties. And later on into my 20s, I was diagnosed with a really rare blood disease that required me to get a bone marrow transplant in college. And so all throughout high school and all of college, I was literally like living in and out of hospitals, which is like a very different experience of disability. My whole high school experience was kind of an invisible disability because my peers didn't know how sick I was. And then when I got into college, it became very apparent because I had to like shave my head. (laughs) And so there was no... Like I couldn't walk around campus anymore and not and have people like not know what was happening. Um, There was also a short period where I was like in a wheelchair too. So like I, it went from super invisible disability to semi-invisible to like very visible um, within the term, like within the period of a decade. And now I'm kind of back to uh, the bone marrow transplant worked. So I'm kind of back to like being in the invisible disability space for the first time in probably like five or six years, which is like, again, a much different experience of disability. So I've got the whole spectrum. Yeah, that's why that's why we're interviewing you. (laughs) So how would you define disability? Because we're going to get into this a little bit later, but there are so many different ideas. And I don't want to say takes because I feel like that's minimizing everything, but there's so many perspectives from different um, disabled people on disability. Um, So how would you personally define it? Yeah, this is very true. There are so many different like social, physical models. Like some people define disability as having some sort of physical impairment or physical, mental, emotional impairment. Other people define it as like the social structure that you're in. So society says that this Um, part or piece of you can't be accommodated in the same way and therefore it's a disability. I tend to think that it's a little bit of both. I don't think that you can really look at disability through purely a physical lens or purely a social lens because my favorite example of this is like everyone wears glasses. Like I know a ton of people who wear glasses and looking at you. Being currently wearing glasses. Yeah. And that's not considered a problem, right? But um, it is like a physical impairment, but it's not a disability necessarily for most people. And so, you know, there are things like being in a wheelchair, disability, accessibility, sort of from that physical space. And that is considered a disability. It's usually the traditional way that people think about disability. And yet there are a lot of people who are in wheelchairs for very short time, um, myself included. And so that form of disability isn't necessarily like long-term, right? Like disability can be long-term, it can be short-term. I think it's really just about who you are in 
place. So I think it's an impairment relative to your like social status oftentimes, because you see this a lot when you look at like marginalized communities, right? Like what does it mean to be a black disabled woman versus what does it mean to be a white disabled woman? Those are two very different experiences of disability with lots of different complicated intersections. So I think that race and social class and gender, they all kind of play into what disability looks like for everyone, which I think is why you get all of these different kind of concepts of what it is. So when that language differs, do you have any suggestions on how to navigate those varying situations and what might be like the safest language to begin with and then how to respond if people correct you, that sort of thing? Yeah. So So my favorite example of this is you often hear people talk about like person first versus identity first language and disability. And the person first is saying, you know, I am a person with dyslexia. Um, And identity first is I am a dyslexic person, right? And lots of people have very different perspectives on why one is better than the other. I generally just say I'm a disabled person because I don't think that disability is a bad word. I think that it's just like a way that we can kind of retake back some of that language, but some people really don't like it. And it often depends on like community. So disability is super diverse. Um, People who are blind, people who have rare diseases, people who have a learning disability are are all disabled. Um, But those communities kind of choose which words they decide kind of fit best for their community. So honestly, the safest way is to ask. (laughs) Like, like you really just got to ask. And if somebody corrects you and it's someone with a disability, then that is different than someone who is able-bodied correcting you. I have had it happen where I'll state like, oh yeah, like I have a disability and someone who's able-bodied and obviously well-meaning, it's like, well, it's a person with a disability. And I was like, well, like it, you have to let the language, you have to let the community kind of determine the language. And so the best thing to do is always to just ask. I dig it. I, I also have ADHD and that one like grammatically for me in my brain is like, I have ADHD versus like, I'm an ADHD person. Just like my brain's like, that's not grammatically correct. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of them, I don't know. Like we both for listeners took a disability studies class together. And when you're writing about disability a lot, you kind of like use identity first and person first language interchangeably, just so it doesn't start to sound redundant. And then later I was like, is that okay to do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it, it really depends on the community and like who you're talking about specifically. You often see this in, um, spaces with wheelchair users are a little bit different than spaces with like chronic illness. Some people with a chronic illness don't even identify as having a disability. A lot of people in the, um, deaf community don't identify with having a disability and do not call themselves disabled. And so it really is community, community, person by person. How does disability affect your relationship with your body? I think 
that my disability has really shaped the way that I talk about my body more than anything else. I often talk about my body as something else other than me. So I'll refer to it in the third person. I'll be like, well, like my stomach, she's like really upset today. It's almost like a mental health wall that I feel, especially as someone with a rare disease that had to figure out how to rationalize the fact that like my body was attacking me, but like I wasn't attacking me, like me as an individual. I had to create some separation between like the functionality and what my body did and like me personally. Because that's a super sticky moral situation to put yourself in too, where you're constantly like, if I'm attacking me, then like, what does that say about me? And so I've always found it really helpful to keep those two things very separate. Because like when I was going through bone marrow transplant, you know, that whole process is basically like your bone marrow being removed from your body. And you like watch yourself kind of deteriorate. And it was when that was happening, I was like, oh, wait, like, I'm still very separate from all of this. Like, obviously, it impacts your mental health and your image and your perception of who you are and some things like that. But it was also really defining in the fact that, like, I'm not my body. And it was a really cool, honestly, just example of that. And so when it comes to like my physical stuff, I think of myself very separately. When it comes to my ADHD, I think that's a little bit different because like, the way that your brain functions and, you know, you see this a lot in brain injuries too. That's a little bit different, right? Like that has a lot more to do with who you are and your thought processes around things. And so I do, I think, consider my, my ADHD and, you know, my processing disorder a little bit more of me than the rare disease and the bone marrow transplant illness. They're just, they're, they relate in different ways to me, if that makes any sense. It does. And I find that really interesting because in a lot of religious conversations about embodiment, it's about, you know, like trusting your body, leaning into your bodily cues. And I think that's a really interesting, really needed perspective on the flip side when you place too much emphasis in your body and how it needs to be a bit more of a balance. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, no, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, so I, as a disabled person pay a lot of attention to my body, right? Like, I kind of know what it needs and wants. And like, I give myself different medications based on that. And I have to pay a lot of attention to that space. But I also can't put like a ton of moral, physical, spiritual weight into it because at the same time, I'm not the one that's controlling it. You see this a lot with like newly diagnosed cancer patients, rare disease patients. They're like, why is this? Why is this happening to me? And I felt I felt like this when this first happened to me. Like, why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? And the answer is that like your body actually isn't you. <laughs> like it is. But sometimes it's healthy to give yourself that separation and be like, yes, I'm here. I'm grounded here. But also, no, like I'm not doing this to myself. And so there is a time to lean in and there is a time to lean out. I think part of like the artistry of learning to be a disabled person is kind of like knowing when is the right time to do that. So speaking of knowing when is the right time to do what, how does disability impact your vocation and navigating, you know, what's next and all those sorts of things. 
disability absolutely impacts and has impacted why I do what I do and kind of how I ended up in my work. So I do public policy and advocacy. And public policy is really about how the rules of our everyday life are written. And advocacy is really about like leaning into your story and thinking about how your story relates to the world and the systems that we kind of live in. And those are things that as a disabled person, I've had to think about my whole life. You, especially in the education system, you're put in the system that you know just isn't written for you. And the whole way that you get through it is by A, changing the rules in your favor, or B, finding a way to get get around the rules, which is what I usually had to do, especially with my physical health. I had to find ways to like be really creative with the way that I like navigated systems. And so what that kind of developed was this ability to like look at things and realize that they didn't have to be this way. Like everything in your world is designed very specifically for someone down to the way that your days are structured and the way that the education system works and the way that even our nine to five jobs work. And it's important to keep in mind that they don't have to be that way. Like someone wrote them to be that way And you have the ability to change that, uh, which is why public policy is so cool because you get to help people write those laws. (laughs) Like literally, it's a great fit for me because it means that like I don't have to accept this, whatever this is at the given moment in time. And just when it comes to like my actual like nine to five work. So I got my bachelor's in creative writing, which is hilarious because I'm dyslexic. And the reason I got my, I know, I know, I literally got an English degree as a dyslexic and I read and write all day. And people are like, how, how is that possible? Like, why, why would you do this? And it's because I loved storytelling, um, but I wanted to find creative ways to do it. And I realized that like, I could life hack myself into English and this doesn't really work for everyone, but kind of learning how to work with my brain and English helped me a lot. And it was something that I needed a four-year degree to develop and learn. And that's why I went with that major. It was because I was developing the skill. And that ended up totally helping me. Like kind of thinking about what I needed to develop where my blind spot was, which was grammar and editing, made me a really useful employee. Because, you know, when you think about college or life as like collecting skills rather than sort of thinking about it as oh like I have to do this set thing you can kind of mix and match what you want to do like when this job came up I was like actually I love public policy but I love communications I like editing and writing but I also like you know just getting in there and doing um talking to people in the face-to-face and I was kind of able to craft like what I wanted out of a position because I knew what I was good at and I kind of knew where my blind spots were and you can take all of those skills and do anything with them I don't have to stay in public policy forever but the same skills kind of go anywhere with you I love that and also I saw college as building skills so this <laughs> Is very, you know, validating to me. Yes, yes. <laughs> but within advocacy, 
I, I was going to ask a question about how is it meaningful to you and how is it then meaningful to the world? But you kind of answered that in just the fact that that's what advocacy is, is telling your own story to the world. But is there a spiritual component to advocacy work? So this is really funny. I'm actually working on like a faith and justice and public policy component right now. Um, So I work for Equality Ohio and we're the statewide LGBTQ public policy and legal org. And part of our job right now is talking to faith leaders about non-discrimination protections. And I think a really interesting component of that is thinking about it as kind of just living in your truth. There are a lot of ways of thinking about religion and spirituality. Personally, I tend to think that uh, religion should be kind of a mix and match of things that you really like and resonate with and like following those things. And if other people want to do religion their own way, then I can. But finding the part of religion or spirituality or, you know, just your relationship with God that resonates for you um, and going with that. And advocacy is basically that like you're basically telling people this is your story this is your truth like it's okay to share that with lawmakers in the world and this is how you can do that so I always just describe it as just tell your truth right and make it known to the people that are in power the people that can change the laws and make them the way that you want them to be that's your truth and not you don't want to change right you don't want to change for people because I think that religion often gets construed as you know making yourself into something um, rather than just like appreciating what you already are and advocacy is about appreciating what you already are and I think often religious like institutions don't do any favors for themselves about dispelling that idea because as soon as you said like I'm living my like the whole idea of living your truth or this is my truth oh boy it sends people into spirals of like no there's one truth there's one way and it's like can we take a deep breath and listen to each other for a hot second Um, yeah no it's just like dude I I don't know if you really want to get like all Christiany about it. Like God is supposed to be this multifaceted being that helps people through their individual lives and journeys. And I don't understand how that can't be interchangeable and adjustable and like willing to work with you where you are. You want to tell me that this being that has all these different parts and pieces and can do anything and be anywhere, like wants you to live in a box, like a very specific box, like this big, like, like a small box of what you can possibly be. That seems wrong. That, that doesn't seem correct to me. I'm right there with you. And I get yelled at by people on the internet all the time. And I'm sure you also get yelled at by people on the internet all the time. (laughs) It's not easy or fun work a lot of the time, but I'm curious, how do you feel that work in your body? Even just like that criticism in your body? I'm a pretty anxious person. Like I feel, I really feel anxiety. Like as like a tingling or like a trembling or a shaking. Uh, when I get nervous, it, it's just like a weight on my chest. And I feel that at times when I shouldn't even feel that, just like waking up on a Tuesday, I feel that. My thing 
with criticism or with even just people on the internet is most of the time, I think it's a good mental health practice to delete things that you don't want to read or that you don't want to see or interact with. It is not worth your peace, especially if you're a marginalized person in any way, shape or form to interact with people that are literally just there to hurt you. And so that brings me peace. But the other thing is that like, it's also okay to engage in difficult conversations if the other party is being a good faith person, like putting faith and trust in other people, um, which I think that most people are in everyday life and just giving people the benefit of the doubt. That is also important. And so whenever I'm in situations like that and I feel myself like starting to tense up a little bit, and I do this a lot in lawmaker meetings actually, because uh, a huge part of my job is talking to elected officials. But I feel myself kind of like tense up a little bit, like I just kind of like try to drop my shoulders and like make myself kind of take a more relaxed position because it's just a, I don't know, they're like, they're ouch moments. That's what I call them when someone says something and your immediate reaction is just like gross. Like, where did that come from? I didn't like that. The the best thing to do in those situations is just to breathe it out, you know, slouch your shoulders, let the other person know that you're not upset or aggressive or if you are upset, like verbalizing that rather than showing it. And it really is a practice. You have to be very purposeful about it. But I've found that it has helped me even as like a very anxious person. So with all of the criticism and feeling everything in your body, how do you kind of push past that without minimizing it to kind of navigate what is your next step? Because with vocation, we always talk about like, when you think too big, sometimes it can be so overwhelming. But if you think just small and small with kind of an ultimate goal on the horizon, it's a lot more helpful of a process. So I'm curious how that manifests in your life or in your advocacy work. I think the thing that is currently helping me right now is not thinking about the future a super ton. I just recently graduated college. I'm in my first job. I understand that the, and my like a first impulse is, oh my God, like what am I going to do next? What happens now? Right. But when I first started, I decided I was going to have this kind of like reframing of that where I was just going to be happy here (laughs) because I love my job. I love my job. I love my coworkers. I feel so blessed every day to get to do this work, but also just, there are a lot of things I need to learn about life and people and just like my field. Right. And I'm surrounded by all these really amazing, talented people who know those things. And so I'm kind of just like chilling right now in my career. I'm trying to just survive with it for like two, three years. And, you know, sometimes it'll come up in conversation. I'll be like, oh, maybe I want to do a master's degree or maybe I'll go to law school or maybe I'll, you know, I'm thinking about doing my PhD or maybe I'll run for elected office or like, you know, and I'm still kind of like figuring out those things. But I feel safe knowing that I've kind of made a commitment to myself to just like sit and learn here. And that is whatever I decide or can learn here without knowing what's coming next a little bit. And it's been super helpful because I don't know, I'm young. I still have a lot of my career left. And so I'm kind of just trying to see what happens next. And I think that that's a very healthy way to kind of look at your 20s especially because hell I don't know like I literally just got engaged and 
Um, if you had told me that I was going to be engaged five years ago, I would have like died of laughter. I would have been like, there's literally no way, there's no way that's going to happen. And it did. And like, I didn't know that, but I welcomed it with open arms and I'm very happy with it. And so you can only plan so much, right? You never, you never really know what's going to happen and being open to that. It's the fun part. I love that. And I definitely also need that reminder. And so I'm grateful that you have given it. So the last question that we try to ask all of our guests is what do you wish you knew about vocation as a kid? Well, when I was younger, I told my parents that I wanted to be president of the United States. And now I work in politics, Um, which is deeply hilarious, even though the idea of that job terrifies me. I would, I never want it. But I think the thing about vocation is that I would brand yourself a lot more widely than being like a nurse or a, uh, a chemist or a teacher. I would think about yourself maybe as like a storyteller or a connector or um, someone who's creative, someone who loves to teach someone who really enjoys art, like thinking about yourself and these things that you like and enjoy and do rather than like, what is your job position? Um, Because my job position currently is that like, I am a public policy organizer and no one knows what that means. And sometimes I don't know what that means, but I do think of myself outside of my role, even especially in the disability community as someone who is a storyteller and a listener, and someone who is really good at figuring systems out, which is the Ohio legislature, and enjoys putting pieces of puzzles together. And kind of letting those things drive what I do has been far more successful for me than thinking about my career options. Because, you know, like where you end up in your vocation or career, it's all going to be decided by like the things that drive you. So you might as well define yourself using those. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on the podcast and just being you and being smart and talented (laughs) and good 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 at your stuff. So thank you for having me on. Thanks to the generous Philip N. Knutson Endowment in Lutheran Campus Ministries. Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Your co-hosts are Drew Tucker and Mary Claire Kunkel, as well as your producer, it's me, Mary Claire Kunkel. And our seaworthy theme music is brought to you by Shane Ivers. Thanks for listening.